Welcome to the Grace Hill Podcast, a weekly podcast of our Sunday messages driven by our pastor. Grace Hill exists to bring God's biblical truth to your everyday life. As we begin this week's message, we invite you to open your Bibles and capture what God has in store for you today. Everybody love Jesus, say amen. amen. Yeah, I'm in the right group. And those of you that didn't, I hope you do before the day's over. It's always good to be back here. I know that Ryan was a little, you know, he informed me that, or reminded me that uh, it is that week after Christmas holidays, and a lot of folks will still be doing what they do through that extended opportunity, but that the very special people would be here today is what he said. He didn't actually say that, but I know that's what he meant. And those of you that are listening, uh, otherwise, you're special too, just so we don't get in trouble. Well, it's so good to be here. There's so many things I want to say, but before I jump into the Word this morning, I felt on my heart. You, you know, the Word that was coming to me this morning was Ebenezer. Now, you, you may think of that as Scrooge's first name, right? I mean, everyone thinks Ebenezer Scrooge. Well, why did Charles Dickens pick that as his first name? What does that word mean? It is the word declared in the Old Testament in Samuel's time as, thus far, the Lord has helped us. It's a meaning that says... We had all these issues, all these troubles. And if you read the whole story there, and then God turns what was an impossible situation around and gives victory. And they set up this stone as a memorial of the victory, and they named it Ebenezer, declaring that thus far the Lord has helped us. So sometimes when you're not sure about the future, you go back to the place and say, I don't know about the future, but I know this, thus far the Lord has helped us. Charles Dickens would choose to use that as the first name of who we would call Scrooge, Ebenezer Scrooge, because the story of his life was showing in his, in his encounters with those, those uh, different angels that the first part of his life, God had been there whether he recognized it or not. And in the present, God was there whether he recognized it or not. And God was going to be in his future whether he recognized it or not. But there was still a decision he had to make. And his decision in Christ, the Christ of Christmas. You know, the story really has an underlying powerful meaning of the Christmas purpose, but that name Ebenezer saying thus far, and every one of us can look back, whether it was difficult or hard or whatever it was, God was there, whether it was an easy time or a, or a storm or, or, a, or a place that it looked like God was there. And when we're fa- able to back away and look and see, there was God. God had his hand. It could have been worse. God kept me. Somehow God was leading and guiding. And it's that declaration that thus far the Lord has helped us. And you know what? I just want to, I feel like I need to declare that to someone this morning. He's been there, but you know what that means to us? You know why they went back to the stone? So they would remember he's still going to be there. And whatever you're facing right now, right now, right now, the same God that's been there is still here and he's going to be with you as you move into the thing you're facing. You do not need to be afraid. You do not need to let the fear torment you or overtake you because God is your Ebenezer. He is that rock. Isn't it interesting that they would use a rock as a moment of remembrance and Jesus would later be called the rock of our salvation, the cornerstone of the church. It's all built on that truth Thus far, the Lord has helped us. He will keep helping you. So if that's you this morning, I just felt like I need to share that with somebody. Just hold on to that truth. It's going to be okay. 2020 doesn't have anything he can bring against us 
to defeat us any more than 2019 did. And the same God that was faithful this far is going to be faithful the rest of the way. Just take confidence in that. Just remind yourself occasionally. And if you ever forget the word, just remember it's Scrooge's first name. And just declare, Ebenezer, thus far, the Lord's helped us. And he's the same yesterday, today, and forever. Amen? Well, I just felt like I should share that. I want to jump into the, we're going to preach about the Bible. Now, you should always preach from the Bible. That's true. But we're not just going to preach from the Bible. We're going to preach about the Bible unless my computer doesn't cooperate. And it's not right now. I got a whole new sermon that is not the one I had planned just pop up. I don't think it's God. I think it's just a stupid iPad. No, I'm sorry. I just So, no, it's fixed. We're okay. Let's go ahead and pray before we even start. Holy Spirit, we welcome you into this house. You're already here. You were here before we got here. You're the ever-presence of God. You're always everywhere. And yet, when we stop to recognize you in a welcoming sense, something shifts in us, and we become aware of your presence. And you're able to become even weightier in our midst. A new density of who you are. We welcome you in this house. You, O oh God, are the one who wrote the Bible. You did it through the hands of writers, but you are the inspiration. You even moved on them in how they would word what they worded and how they wrote it out, where they put punctuation marks. And now it's been translated from the original language to the language that we speak. Thank you for that gift. Thank you that you've even watched over that. And that you have kept your word alive for us. Making it available to us. And now, oh God, because you wrote it, you're the teacher of it. We ask you to teach it to us. We don't want to misunderstand it. We want to correctly understand it. And we want to know how to live it out and apply it. We thank you for keeping it all these years and protecting it from every attack that the enemy has brought against your word. We thank you for its truth. Now we ask you to speak to us concerning your word and how we should use it so that we take full advantage of this opportunity you've created for us. We give you glory and honor for it all in Jesus' name. Amen. You know, the Bible is a living book. It's not like any other book. I know I can read a book more than one time and get something from it the second time I didn't get from it the first time just because of my ability to comprehend. And sometimes I'm paying more attention when I'm reading through it once than I am the other time. And my mind's in a way that I see it differently. I get that. That's just kind of, that's just who we are. That has nothing to do with what's written. That just has to do with how we learn and how we're built. And yet the Bible has something about it so powerful that's, that's more than just that. There's something about it where I can read the same verse every morning, not go on to a new verse. And every morning it can say something fresh to me different than it said yesterday. It can speak to the moment I'm in and to the circumstance I'm dealing with. Again and again, it's alive. It's living. Hebrews will make that declaration. I'll read that to you here in just a minute. But it's a powerful book. It's something that we can learn and learn and grow and grow and read and read and never get to the end of. As a matter of fact, it's not designed to be a book that you finish and put on the shelf and say, I have read that book. 
It's not even a book designed so that I take the course and I pass the test and say, I now know that book. No, it's not that at all. It's a life-giving book. Oh, it's got that in it, but it's a life-giving book that every time I read it, something happens in me. It's, it's what the scripture speaks of itself and calls itself daily bread. It is something that I eat and it becomes nourishment to me. It nourishes and strengthens my spirit every time I read it. And when I go too long without reading, my spirit pays the price. My spirit, man, begins to be undernourished. But when I read it regularly, it grows me and develops me and makes me who I need to be. It is, according to itself, a lamp to my feet and a light to my path so that when I don't know where to go, I go to the Bible and the Bible shows me this is where you go. God speaks through his own written word and it brings life to me. Reading is more than just the, it's more than reading the words of the concepts, though the concepts are very important to who we are. It literally becomes a part of my relationship with its author. Literally, part of my relationship with God is fulfilled. So that the book itself, though it's just a book on one side, it's more than a book. And because of who wrote the book, and because when I read the book, the author always shows up. It becomes an emotional encounter with me that I actually get connected, not to the book as a book, but to the words of the book. And it's literally a relational experience that I have when I understand the full power of the Bible and what it means. So it's not something I want to go a long time without because something happens when I begin to read it and he begins to rest with me as I read it. He begins to show me. He feeds me. He enables me, strengthens me. It's the only book that builds faith. It says that when you hear the word of the Lord, faith is released in you. And when your faith is not where it's supposed to be, reading the book will literally cause your faith to be encouraged and something will begin. It's just a powerful opportunity. We're going to look at it in all kinds of ways today, and I, I'm going to, we're going to cover a lot. I'm just setting you up, so stay with me. I love John 1.1 1, 1 because John starts out by saying, in the beginning was the Word, the Word was with God, and the Word was God. That's not on the screen, so I'm not ready to go to the screen. Keep looking at me. I'll tell you when. In the beginning was the Word. What does that mean to us? It means that everything happened happened because God spoke it into being. It also means Jesus was the Word, and it's a revelation of Jesus being the Word of God or the fulfillment of the Word of God, the completion of the Word of God, the origin of the Word of God. But still, everything that was created from Genesis forward was created by the Word of God. The powerful Word of God, that when the Word of God speaks, that which wasn't now can be, and that which He says must be, for His Word cannot return empty or without accomplishing the purpose it was said to, sent to accomplish. And so there's that power of the Word that is so powerful. The Word, it begins with it. When God said, let there be light, there was light. When He said, let there be an expanse, there was one. There was atmosphere created. When God said, let the land divide from the water, it did. And whatever God spoke into being, when He spoke animals, there were When he spoke to the dead man, Lazarus, in the tomb and said, Lazarus, come forth, what did he do? He couldn't help it. He had to get up. He was still bound, and he come wobbling out to the entrance of that tomb. And then he said, somebody loose him and let him go. Sometimes he commands us to do something by his word, and sometimes his word is simply sent to do what it's called to do. And one of the scriptures even said that he sent his word to heal them. Wow. On and on we could go about the power of the word. In the beginning was the word. Anytime God's going to do something new in your life, the first thing he will do is speak it. And once he speaks it, it releases, it changes the atmosphere, it changes, it changes the potential the, and, and all of that. And suddenly a faith comes into you. Where does that word come from? It comes from the written word. Romans ten seventeen says, so then faith comes by hearing and hearing the word of God. 
Hebrews said, for the word of God is living and active, sharper than any double-edged sword. It penetrates even dividing the soul and the spirit, joints and marrow. It judges the thoughts and the attitudes of the heart. Boy, that's a powerful truth. It's a lamp to my feet. Psalms, Psalms 119 says, Matthew says, and Jesus answered the devil, it is written, man does not live by bread alone, but on every word that comes from the mouth of God. Now, isn't that interesting? Jesus the Son of God, the God, the Christ, the Creator, the God who was a part of in the beginning when He said, let us make man in our own image. That same God is now taken on human form through what we just celebrated with Christmas and His virgin birth through Mary. And now He's one-on-one with the devil in the wilderness. He could have just said, you know, boy, I created you. (laughs) You're not really anything. But He had taken on human form And so he had to deal with the devil the way humans deal with the devil. And what did he do? He declared, it is written. Not just it is spoken, but it is written. He literally reached over and picked up the inspired word that had been written through the prophets. And all three temptations, he defeated the devil by quoting what was written in the Old Testament, what we would now call the Old Testament writings Some from the Psalms, some from the prophets. But the declaration of that written book suddenly had God's stamp of approval on it. And it proved its power by defeating the devil, the tempter, with the power of the word of God. That's why the Hebrew writer would say, it's like a double-edged sword. You can do battle with this thing. It's powerful. Powerful. And then we would see God move forward. And I don't have time today to get in so much theology to go everywhere I want to go. But... We see the power of it at work and the sword of the truth carried forward by the New Testament writings of Paul the Apostle, of the, of the four evangelists, we often call them the writers of the Gospels, Matthew, Mark, Luke, and John. The writings of Luke and the extra writing in Acts and later on 1st, 2nd, 3rd John and what Peter wrote. Peter's writings were incredible, what James wrote. And finally, John's final writing his encounter with God on the Isle of Patmos in the book of Revelation. And all of that becomes clearly the fullness of the book we call the Bible. And it's filled with life and truth. Oh, just to teach you, I'd love to just pull up a chair and sit down and talk about how it all connects and how it all works and how it proves itself to be true. But what I want to say to you today is we have this gift from God called the Bible that we seldom use as often as we should. But when we do use the book... Now, now, don't misunderstand where I'm about to take you. The book never replaces the author. Say amen right there. I want to make sure you got that. I want to make sure you heard me. I want you to, I want you to give me a sign. We heard you. The book doesn't replace the author. But, it, but if you want the teacher to teach you, wouldn't it be good if you brought the textbook to class with you? That he did inspire the book and he teaches from it and he uses it and he adheres himself to it and it does not return and it's an important part of our process. But it has a life in it, not it's the life of God, not life separate from God. It's not a life of its own, but it's the life of God who wrote it that literally has an impact in our life. Now let's, let's start working through these, uh, these little uh, slides here. Let's go to the next one. This is some research. I'm fixing to walk you through this. This is some research done by a group, that incredible group, who, who is the, uh, I forget their name, but it's the Power of Bible Engagement, was their study. And they came up with this study that was, they hired Barna Research, if you know who Barna Research is. And I've, I've worked with the people at Barna in this process to make sure this was all good. And in the research, here's what they discovered. Look at this. 
If a person engages with the Bible four or more times a week, by the way, that's an average of 10 minutes or more per time, 10 minutes or more per time, they engage with the Bible at least four times a week, they are 228% more likely to share their faith with somebody else. That's not the pastor teaching them how to do it. It's not giving us a course. It's not encouraging us. It's just something about spending that much time in the Bible. They just, they're more confident, 228% more time to bring up what God is doing in their life at work or with somebody or with a neighbor or with a friend. It just naturally shifts how they tell others about you. Look at number two. 407% more likely to memorize the scripture. My word have I hid in my heart that I might not sin against you. That's what David said. Jesus was able to reach out and pull and declare a scripture he had memorized. He wasn't able to read it. He was able to declare it because he had memorized it. Memorization matters. But if you're not going to read it, you're probably not going to memorize it. As a matter of fact, 407% more likely to memorize the scripture. Once you begin to read it, there's this desire to actually know it and put it into memory. Look at this one. 59% less likely to view pornography. Isn't that kind of cool? People battling with pornography. I've been, I'm hooked on this. How do I get out of it? I I try to stop and then all of a sudden it's there and I can't avoid it. The next thing I know I'm back in it again. I want to get out of this pit. I know it's destructive to my marriage. I know it's destructive to my life. I know that it should not have this good. How do I break it? Here's what, here's what this is teaching us. If you'll use your eyes for what they were meant for, you're less likely to use them for what they were not meant for. It's a powerful piece that when you begin to feast on the word of God, you are 59% less likely to view pornography. It literally shifts what you do. 33% less likely to struggle with loneliness. Wow. If you're struggling with loneliness, get a Bible. Get alone with God and spend at least 10 minutes a day, at least four times a week. Now, that at least, see, here's, here's why they ask in the study. I, you know, I know all these guys and worked with them. And in this study, I, I, I kind of pushed back a little bit on it and made sure they were, they were right and accurate. And I said, why four? They said, no, we don't know. All we know is that when we study someone doing it once a week, twice a week, three times a week, the shift in actual life is very minimal. But something happens. It's a tipping point at four times a week. What I believe happens is if you're doing it four, you're probably doing it five or six. I think that's the moment when you're committed, when you're over the top. You've really become a regular reader of the Bible. And all of us will miss some days. Somebody say amen to that. Yeah, there you go. So nobody has to be perfect. Somebody say amen to that. But the idea is when you've made it a lifestyle, a habit, a way of life, and you're reading it regular enough where you almost always nail four times a week, there's a shift in your existence and in how you do life that is phenomenal. Are you pretty excited about this so far? Well, let's look at some more. Let's go to the next one, guys. This next one. So then what did I do? Well, I'm working on a whole thing that I'm not going to take time to tell you all about, but it's, we're called it Bible engagement for the assemblies of God. And we're building all this stuff and your pastor will be able to tell you about it when it comes out. But, but in all of my studies, I went in and hired Barner Research. And David Kinnaman now owns Barna. It used to be owned by George Barna. George Barna hired David Kinnaman years ago. They've worked on many of these studies. Now, now George is retiring and David's taken over. So I hired David's company. It's quite a big company. They have a, they have a part out on the West Coast. Part of it is in, in Atlanta. Part of it is in New York. And they do these incredible studies. And they're, they're hired by all kinds of people to do research. But David is a born-again, spirit-filled Christian. And they put me together with a group of the, the 
their main researchers who are all, everyone, four of them go to Assemblies of God churches. So I know these people are, they're, they're us. I trust them. And, and they're just great people. And they went to work and we spent over a year and a lot of my money. And uh, actually, it's a lot of your money because I spent Assemblies of God money, just so you know. And I spent your money so that we could come to the truth about this. And, and there's, a, there's, a, there's 90 pages of, of report that I'm not going to try to give you today. I just picked out a couple that I thought you would get something out of. Now, somebody say four times a week. Because that's what we declared to be a regular engagement in Scripture. In order to be to qualify in the, in the high zone, I can't see it because of the speakers, but I know it's there. The high zone is, um, is, is, is the little triangle, red triangle. It's at least four times a week. The, the two times or less is medium and probably not even once a week. Almost never it would be low. Now, I want you to, we just pulled up. The one I pulled up is the fruits of the Spirit. Now, because we believe in the baptism of the Holy Spirit, the infilling of the Holy Spirit, we believe that when you're filled with the Holy Spirit, the evidence of speaking in tongues will come, that the gifts of the Spirit can begin to flow through you that are listed, beautiful gifts. But we also believe in the fruit of the Spirit. Somebody say amen. We believe you should be different, and the Holy Spirit's nature should begin to express himself through you and make a difference. So, what we did, this one, is we asked a bunch of people who said they were spirit-filled about some questions. There was about six questions in the survey in each one of these areas that would literally help us determine with whether or not they were actually living out a spirit, a fruit of the spirit life. You with me so far? All right, so let's look at love. People that did not engage in the Bible, though they said they were spirit-filled, 13% of their actions would have a flavor of love. 25% would have a real flavor of love if they were moderately in the scripture, but 52% of the flavor of love if they were more. So what is that saying to us? That's saying to us that spirit filled alone has some impact, but then you add the Bible to it on a regular basis, you literally shift in how the love of God flows through your life. You with me so far? I mean, the book matters. Fifty-two percent. You say, "Well, why not a hundred percent?" Because we're still people. Yeah, that was a weak amen, but it's the truth. <laughs> so, if your husband doesn't love you better, get him to read the Bible more. You think I'm kidding, but I'm not. If your kids don't know how to love better, put them in the Bible more. It literally has that kind of an impact as you begin to give yourself to the Bible and the Bible begins to get in you. Now, it's not separate from its author. It's got to be connected. Remember, it's a relationship we're working toward with God through the Scripture. Now, joy. If you're not, if you're not walking in joy, 68% more likely if you're spending at least four days a week in the Bible. Look at, look at peace. 68% more likely. Look at patience. Whoops. What happened there? What happened? So I, so I called I call David, and I said, David, something's wrong with patience because it really doesn't seem to matter. Your numbers are all the same, so there's something flawed in your survey. He said, we thought that too. So we went back and studied our survey, and we've come to the conclusion our survey is pristine. It's exactly what it should be. There's nothing wrong with our survey. Here's the problem. Even the Bible can't help us with patience. <laughs> 
which I immediately remember what James said. He said, tribulation worketh patience. Let patience have a perfect work. So the only way to get more patience is do the stuff that makes you need more patience and the struggle, and that's how you get there. Anyway, then we see it with kindness. We see it with goodness, faithfulness. Now, even though some are high, like goodness goes all the way up to 85%, we're real proud of that, and 83% on faithfulness. But look at the difference. Don't just look at how high. Look at the difference between those engaged in Scripture a lot and those not engaged in Scripture. It's the span between the 27% of goodness when they're just spirit-filled Christians versus 80, what is that? I can't see it. Three, eight, 88%? They're good when they're actually put the Bible in their life. Wow, huh? You're showing the power of Scripture. What happens when we read the Bible? Go to the next one. Hurry, guys, because I'm slow. I'm taking too long. Um, I would feel confident sharing my faith. We already saw that in the previous one. Goes up 78% versus 16 to those who don't read the Bible. People say, I just don't tell my friends. I'm just not confident. You want to get confident in sharing your faith with your friends? Start reading the Bible. It'll teach you. It'll enable you. It'll inspire you. It'll, it'll literally shift your result. We see it there. I would feel confident sharing about my faith with friends. It, that keeps going. Look at this 99%. I believe the Holy Spirit regularly intervenes in people's lives today. People who read the Bible regularly. What did we talk about? Faith a while ago. Your faith goes up. Literally believe God will intervene. They literally believe God's involved in daily life today and in our lives today. People who spend time in Scripture do just what the Bible said. Their faith goes up. Their belief and expectancy in God goes up when they're spending time in the Word. 94% when I'm at work, it's important to me that I do excellent work. So what does that mean? That means the quality that you produce in your life, the way you want to be perceived, the way you want God in the name of the Lord that's on you perceived, literally shifts when you spend time in the Word. I have a personal responsibility to help those in need. What, what does that mean? We become more compassionate, more helpful. We just become better people when we spend time in the Bible. Y'all want one more of these? Let's do another one because I'm going to preach in a minute, but I'm warming up now. Look at this. Family relationships. It's not, it's not huge, but it does make a, it does make a difference that I'm, I, am, I am more satisfied. That's a satisfaction thing. This is all about satisfaction. And when I spend time in the Bible, I become more satisfied with family relationships. I become more satisfied with friendships. I become more satisfied with my job. I didn't change jobs. I just started reading the Bible, and I became more satisfied with my job. Look at that personal time and development. Look at the difference. Look at the one engagement at church. Look at the difference. People that read the Bible regularly, their their engagement at church shifts. They begin to know and connect. Everything changes, and they're more satisfied with their local church relationship. We see that in work, personal life, and out of balance. All right, guys, go to the next one. we got to keep moving because I've been here a while. And here's one of the things we've done in our studies. Y'all still in this, right? All right, I know this is like he's preaching, but he's giving a seminar. I'm not giving it. It's just warming you up and for where we're going. By the way, this is the long part. Does that make you feel better? It should. I hope so. Now, look over here, or where, whichever one you're looking. This is pastors. We ask a bunch of pastors what they think the most important thing was. And it's interesting. They thought their preaching was the most important thing. That, uh, that, took, the, that took it. My preaching. They, they believe. I believed. I, hey, I was a pastor for a lot of years. 
And I just felt like that sermon's going to make all the difference in the world. If they just come hear me preach under the anointing of the Holy Spirit, they're going to be drastically changed, and they're going to go home incredible people, happy and full of God and righteous, and just it's just going to be, I am really good at what I do, and I know it's going to change your world. So I felt like my preaching was the key. Well, that's pretty well all of us. We feel called to preach. All of us have that tendency to believe that by our preaching, we're going to have the impact we need to have. This is how they feel. Number number Actually, next was worship, and you look at total height. We believe the worship experience is going to bring forth the, the, the powerful change that's needed. So my worship and our worship and preaching. Number three, we put prayer. We put Bible in number four. We, this is interviewing AG pastors. This is our tribe. Our pastors, they put Bible in number four. They thought if they could just, you know, it's somewhere down there. But you know what our study has proven? It's not that way at all. Our study has proven that the most important thing actually should be the Bible. And it's more important for us to get you to go home and read the Bible than just hear us read the Bible to you. Amen, Pastor. We're getting this. All right. Stay with me. And so you have that little shift. We're discovering that worship is very important in the transformation process. But if you've been in the Bible all week, and then you come, when you hear the preaching, something more more powerful happens in you, your worship experience shifts, and your prayer goes to a new level. So so are you saying, Pastor, reading the Bible is more important than prayer? No. No, no, no. I'm saying reading the Bible has a greater impact on you, but your prayer is still necessary for the impact that God wants to have on on others. Is that making sense? So there's, it, you don't, it's not, we don't choose any of these and throw away the rest. No, but if we don't move Bible up into its place and to give it the right place and some of our great, some of these, some of our research is proven again and again that pastors who lead their people deep into their own personal devotional life literally have an explosion. Those people become leaders in the church. They become leaders in their community. They literally just take the church to a new level. And so that the job of the pastor is to get all he can to get you to study the book of Romans. Good idea. To get you to read with them and study through and be a part of it and grow and know and develop your own Bible-connected life. Okay, take what I can get. They didn't put as much importance on building the community as I think they should have. Because I believe we are a church together and we should be connected one to the other. And that's a part of the process. I was a little disappointed in this. Service to others, actual hands-on. What do we say when we study the scripture? We're going to become more compassionate, more involved in the needs of others. So there's a direct connection. And finally, our weakest area is evangelism. That's kind of sad, isn't it? Because Romans 10 is very clear that unless you call on the name of the Lord, you can't be saved. But those who do call on the name of the Lord will be saved. But how are they going to call on the name of the Lord if someone doesn't tell them about him? And that's the job of the church. And so that whole thing about changing and lifting up, causing us to become tellers of the gospel tellers of the truth, that 228% more likely to do that if we're engaged in Scripture. Evidently, just hearing the preacher tell us to do it is not having the impact. Y'all are so quiet today. I know you're thinking with me, and I'm giving you a lot of information. What I'm showing you is we did this incredible study, and I told you it's 90 pages. We're not going to go through all that. I just tried to give you the piece to show you the power of the Word of God to you personally and to the church as a whole. When we engage in the Scriptures, something begins to happen that can't happen otherwise. Let's go quickly to the next slide. So there is a negative to not doing it. And I pick out one story in the scripture that proves the negative. And we're going to walk through that story real quickly. Then we're going to look at one that proves the positive. Then we're going to wrap up. 
on the negative in the next passage. On the negative, what we see here is from Samuel. The boy Samuel ministered before Eli, before the Lord, under Eli. And in those days, the word of the Lord was rare. There were not many visions. Now, this begins by declaring the word of the Lord is rare. So what happens when the word of the Lord is rare? It's, it's quite a story. If, we, if you're in your Bible and you, you wanted to circle that word, because from that moment, a series of things happened in the next two chapters as Samuel would write it. Now, the book of Samuel is not all written by Samuel. He begins the process, but it keeps his name even after he dies. So we know someone else picked it up and finished it. But, but Samuel is writing at this time. So he's telling the story from his point of view in the beginning. Let's go to the next, next slide and let's just walk through these real fast. The word of the Lord was rare. The next thing that happened was the lamp of God went out. After that, Ichabod was declared, and finally the ark was taken. Let's just look at that real quickly. The lamp went out. What does that mean? Well, Samuel wrote it this way in his writing. He said, before the lamp of the Lord went out, and then he starts to tell the story. What does that mean? He's saying the lamp of God. He actually doesn't say of the Lord. He said the lamp of God. That lamp of God was the lamp that had been, had, had begun in the beginning, way back in the wilderness when they built the tabernacle under the time of Moses. There was a lamp that would be kept burning and it would go into the holy place. And it was that lamp that gave light inside the holy place so the priests could do what they did because it, it had no windows, it had no door that stayed open, it would have been dark. But that lamp gave them the light to do what God was calling them to do, to see what needs to be done, to see and process. It was that lamp. But it was not just any fire. God did not allow man-made fire to go into that place. But this was the fire that fell from the cloud. You know the story probably, the cloud in the wilderness led them as a fire by day and a cloud by night and out of that cloud where the fire which which was the holy spirit fell and came down on the altar in front of everyone and the whole nation of israel stood in awe that a heavenly fire fell upon an earthly altar and then they were required by the law to keep that fire burning that was the fire that was put in the lamp so that only holy fire which all through the old testament the fire represents the work of the holy spirit the last time we see fire representing the holy spirit was on the day of pentecost when and as a tongue, he set on each one. He divided into tongues of fire and rested on all of the 120 in the upper room. That's the last time we see the Holy Spirit represented by fire. And then they begin to speak in other tongues. And then the reoccurring event that we see is speaking in tongues. But up to that point, it was fire. And so the Old Testament fire, which is the Holy Spirit, was on the lamp. Well, here's what happened. Are y'all still with me? What happened was, during the time of Eli's sons, they, uh, Hophni and Phinehas, they were, they were not good boys. They didn't respect their father. They, they did not honor him the way they should. They didn't honor the word the way they should. They were gluttonous. They were, they were they, sexual sins and stole the offering. They were just bad guys. Well, when they got all wrapped up in themselves, they stopped doing what the word required, and they stopped keeping the new oil in the lamp. Because they were supposed to add, one of them was supposed to add new oil every morning, and one of them was supposed to add new oil every night. So that in the morning and the night, the daily activity 
The daily activity literally would keep the lamp burning. And when the daily activity stopped being correct and consistent, eventually the lamp... Here's what was sad, is they had kept that lamp burning, the 40-year walk through the wilderness. They had kept the lamp burning, the next generation that brought them over the Jordan into the promised land. And now the tabernacle is set up in Shiloh. And they had kept the lamp burning, those previous generations, until this one generation with these two sons of Eli did not take care of the work of the Lord, and it was during their time that the lamp went out. So Samuel writes this story saying, before the lamp of God went out, things were already starting to go bad. And then he goes ahead and tells the story. So we know that somewhere when the, when the word of the Lord is rare and it's not kept, eventually the lamp goes out. Eventually the work of the Holy Spirit that was once intense stops being what it was. It once gave light in the dark place so that the church knew how to worship God and work in God and be led by God. All of that went away. All that the Holy Spirit brought to the table eventually went away after the word of the Lord was rare. The second thing that we know in this story was was Ichabod. There's another one of those Bible words, but Ichabod means the glory has departed. Now that word came because Hophni and Phinehas went off to battle. They got the Ark of the Lord, took it out of the holy place, holy of holies, and took it into battle because they were losing a battle and they thought the symbol of God's presence would be enough to turn it. Can I just tell you, a symbol's never enough. You've got to have the God who made the symbol. And they carried the Ark down and they were thoroughly defeated. The Ark was stolen. And when they come back, when the messenger came back, he said to Eli, the father, who's now an old, old man, around a hundred years old, they said, said to Eli, they said, your sons have both been killed in battle. The ark of the Lord has been stolen and he fell over dead. And then the wife to one of the boys was pregnant and she went into labor and gave birth as she was dying. After giving birth, she was dying. She said, name the boy Ichabod because the glory has departed. The glory of the Lord departed. So here's what we see. We see the, the lamp of God goes out. The presence of the Holy Spirit, the working, the, 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 the work of the Holy Spirit to illuminate, to bring understanding, all that he was doing, that goes away. Number two, the glory of the Lord departs. Why does the glory matter so much to the church? It was Moses who said, when God said, I'm going to send an angel with you and send you and the children of Israel into the, into the battle to win the back and defeat the enemies and to establish and settle in the land I promised. To. And God, he said, but I'm not going to go with you because those people make me mad. You read it. That's basically what God said. Every time I get with those people, they say and do stuff just makes you want to kill them. And if I stay with them, I'm going to destroy them. And, and then Moses stands up and defeats against God. And he says, God, no, if you're not going to go with us, then I'm not going either. He said, no, you have to go. And I'm sending an angel with you. He says, no, no, I'm not going to go. Because if you do not go with us, what will distinguish us from every other nation on the face of the earth? What distinguishes the true church from every other social gathering in the world? It's the glory of God. We should walk in the door and say, wow, the presence of the Lord is in this house. There should be something about our demeanor. There should be something about who we are, that very glory of the Lord that rests upon us, it changes us. But when the word of the Lord becomes rare, we lose that. We begin to be more like the world and less like God. When the word of the Lord is rare, we begin to adapt to the culture around us and to society around us. Some people say, what do you preach there in this time when so many anti-God, so many anti-Scripture things are happening and society is embracing so much ungodliness? What do you preach? It's very simple. You don't have to deal with all of that piece by piece. Just keep preaching the Bible. Preach the Bible. Preach the Bible. Preach the Bible. Preach the Bible. Just let the word defend itself. And as the power of the word comes, when that's there, then the glory can come. But 
when the Bible goes away, suddenly the glory, we're no different. It's, we're just like everyone else. Finally, the ark of the Lord was taken. They released it. It was stolen into battle and goes up and they put it at the temple of Dagon. What does that represent to us? The, the ark of God in that position represents the church, you and I, the church we are. We are the church. It's his church. He is the head of the church and we are the church. We are his, his noses and his eyes and his ears and all the pieces that make up the body of Christ. We are the church. We are the church, and the church is supposed to have a place of preeminence and persuasion in the nation and in society, but when the word of the Lord is rare, it's removed from its place, and the church no longer has the respect, the reverence, the voice that it once had. Now, some of you, I'm looking at a lot of young people today, and I'm so glad you're here. When I was a boy, the church was still well-respected in the community, very well-respected. And in my lifetime, I've watched the church lose its place of influence and its place of preeminence. The voice of the church used to matter today. It's mocked. We can tie all of that back to the word of the Lord became rare. Are you with me so far? I've given you the negative. These are all negatives because the word of the Lord was rare. The Holy Spirit stopped being able to give illumination. The glory of the Lord departed. And finally, and finally, the church loses its place of influence. Now, let's go on to the next one because I told you it wouldn't take forever. Let's look at the positive. Somebody say, praise God, there's something positive. I was getting pretty depressed here. I didn't know where we were going. Give us some hope. Let's go to the next one, guys. I'm just going to keep us moving. This one says, therefore, this is Jesus. Somebody say, Jesus. All right, this is what he said. Therefore, everyone who hears these words of mine and puts them into practice is like a wise man who built his house on the rock. The rain came down, the steams rose, streams rose, and the winds blew and beat against that house. Yet it did not fall because it had its foundation on the rock. What is the rock? These words of mine. I know sometimes we say, Jesus is the rock. Well, let's read it again. Though This is for everyone who hears these words of mine and puts them into practice. Jesus is the rock of our salvation. He is the cornerstone, the head of the corner. I, I get that, but that's not what he's saying here. What he's saying here is my word. Who hears my word and does it, he's saying. What does that mean to us? That means to us, when we put ourselves into the word of the Lord, we are preparing ourselves for any storm that comes our way. He's literally guaranteeing us, not that storms won't come, but that we'll still be standing after they come. He's guaranteeing us. We can go on to the next slide, guys. He's guaranteeing us that this, is, this coming storm, whether it's personal or whether it's national. See, storms are good. Did you know storms are good? Yeah, I mean, they're good if you're indoors and you got a good house. They're okay. They're not so bad. And as long as they don't have a tornado with them, you know, they're, they're okay. Storms are good. There's value in storms. But here's why it's good to the church. In the time of Paul the Apostle, they're taking him off to Rome, and they're going to they're gonna kill him. That's the goal. They're going to they're gonna put him before judgment. Well, the, the guy, the centurion soldier who had charge of Paul, booked them passage on this ship to get them where they needed to go. Well, the night before they leave, an angel of the Lord speaks to Paul, and he says, tell the captain and the, of the guards and the captain of the ship and the owner of the cargo not to sail because a storm is coming and they can't see it nor can they know it, but it's coming. And if they sail into the storm, 
uh, it'll be devastating. So he talks to the centurion, the captain over him, and said, you know, this is what God said. So he goes and tells the rest of the people involved. So they come back to meet Paul. And they say, Paul, why do you believe this? And he told them, the Lord God stood by me this night. That's what he told me. They said, well, have you ever, you ever been the captain of a ship? No. Are you like a meteorologist or something? No. Do you, what will qualify you to tell us? We've, we've been in this business a long time. We know how to read the signs of weather. We know how to guide our ship. You know, we're not listening to you. All right. So the, the Bible said they barely got out of view of land when the storm overtook them. And for, for many days, many days, they couldn't get out of the storm. The, the word is Eurachlodon, and it's a word that means it's a storm that just kept feeding off of the heat of the water. It just wouldn't go away, and it wouldn't move. And this is, remember, this is, they're powered by wind. And they couldn't drive out of it. They're, so it's just, it's just ships. So they dropped the sails. They said, what do we do? Then it said they took all the cargo, all the potential profit. They threw it overboard so they could what, go higher in the water. Then they took all the tackle, all the ability to control the mechanisms and everything involved. Anything with weight, they threw it over. Finally, there was nothing left to throw. Luke writes the book of Acts. And Luke wrote, we despaired even of our life. We this is over. We're going to die out here. That's what he thought. And then the angel of the Lord comes to Paul. He said, you tell everybody if they'll stay with the ship, they'll all be saved. The ship will be destroyed, but I'll save their lives. They just have to stay with the ship. So Paul calls the guard back in and says, God stood by me tonight. What did he say? <laughs> he said, stay with the ship. You know what happened? They did. Great story how it plays out. They did. But here's what happened. The storm restored the voice of the messenger of God. And we probably need a storm in America to restore the voice of the church. But we don't need to be afraid of a storm if that's what God needs to send, as long as we're founded on the Word. As long as we're founded on the Word. That's why I wrote Ark up there. I'm not speaking about the Ark of the Covenant. I'm speaking about Noah's Ark. Before God sent a storm, He always sends an Ark. He always provides a way before judgment of any kind comes. And judgment's not bad. Judgment's positive. It's to wake us up so that we can repent and be restored. And so when God's about to do that, what does he do? He sends a way out. He sends a way. He sent an ark. In Goshen, God had a protection so that some of the plagues could not reach them, though they were in Egypt. There was a separation between God's and not God's. And how does God do that today? You ready for this? Bible availability. I'm wrapping up now, so just, just, just stay touch, stay in touch with me as I finish this up. There's never been a people on the face of this earth, ever, from Adam forward, from Noah forward. There's never been a people on the face of the earth that has had so much personal access to the written word of God, ever, ever. Even in the day of Jesus, the, the scrolls that, were, that were, were traced and rewritten by the scribes, handwritten. They had men. That's all they did was because they didn't have copy machines. They'd write them. But where did they take them? They took them to the different places and houses of worship, to the synagogues. And they were kept at the synagogue. No one took one home with them. Those scrolls are huge. It was a big thing when Jesus stood up at his hometown synagogue. And they brought him the scroll from Isaiah. And he read about himself. And then he said, this day is this scripture fulfilled in your hearing. That's powerful. But where he had to go there to do it? To Jesus, to know the word, he had to memorize it in order to have it. When 
when the devil came. He had to learn the word because it wasn't like that. And then, you know, eventually the Gutenberg press comes out and we begin to print Bibles one sheet at a time. And we thought, how cool is this? But it still took a long time to do it. And then finally printing would develop and grow until the world today. We have all these printing capabilities. It's pretty cool. But nobody ever saw the fact that we would develop digital. When I was a kid, we never thought of this. This is happening right now. And right now, we can pull up our phones and pull open our Bibles in 14 different versions to get the one that helps you get it the best. And we're printing Bibles in every language, not just language, but every heart language around the world. We're putting the scripture into every heart language. What's God doing? What's all this about? I believe with all my heart that God's given us an ark so that we can learn his word and we'll stand firm with whatever storm comes in our life because we will know it and do it. The power of the Bible is incredible. And your Christian experience, like no other generation, has the greatest opportunity it's ever been given. Because now you can pull it out at lunch break. You can pull it out at the dining room table. You can pull that thing wherever you are. You, 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 nobody, I can't find hardly anybody that doesn't have a cell phone with them anymore. And if you haven't downloaded an app, I can give you 12 options to download for free today. We can get it in your hand. It's there. Why would God do this now? Unless he's up to something pretty big. And he is. But kind of like old Ebenezer Scrooge. The opportunity is only good if you take advantage of it. Somewhere you've got to make a decision. Commit yourself to the Bible and to its truth and to knowing it. Four times a week is the beginning, not the end. Ten minutes a day will seem like a lot at first, but eventually you'll realize you've been in it for 30 minutes and you don't know how to get out, nor do you want to. Some of it's genealogies, but there's a point where you even get good out of those as you learn the power of how it connects. Get you a Bible. And I know Ryan, he was doing his devotions this morning in a real book, a real Bible. I was doing mine on computer. What has happened to this world? I don't know. They say the new generation spends so much time on screen, they'd rather have a Bible in their hand. I get that. We, to us, it's cool because we can type notes and it goes right to our phone and we can pull it up when we need it. We're, we're still enamored by that idea. But however old you are and however you choose to do it, the thing is you have to do it. You have to do it for it to have the impact God wants to have in your life. Bow your heads with me. Father, I've talked about your book today. I've talked about it a lot. You inspired it. It's holy. It's powerful. It never returns empty. Everything it begins to do, it finishes. What it starts to do, it completes. Every word you have spoken must be and will be fulfilled. Some of it has been. Some of it will be. But this we know, it's truth. And you said, Jesus, it's the rock under our feet. If we hear it and do it, then when the wind blows, we'll still stand. When the wind and rain comes against us, we'll not be flooded out. We'll survive. And I know, Lord, you're wanting to reestablish your word in our nation and in our world. And it may, we may need a storm to get there. 
but we're not afraid of it because you have provided a place in your word that we will be directed. It'll be bread to us. It'll be a lamp to our feet, a light to our path. And we'll end up in the right place at the right time again and again and again, divinely led by you as we spend time listening to your voice through your book. We ask you to encourage us, stir us, stir us to make a commitment and develop a discipline spending time in your Bible. I thank you for it. Thank you for listening to this week's podcast. Grace Hill is always about knowing God and growing in God, and we want to hear from you. If you have a prayer request or a question, you can email us at info at gracehill.cc.